here. And we're looking at strange, odd, weird, difficult to understand, off-the-wall passages in the Bible. And I was talking to my wife earlier this week, and I was telling her that this series has gone on longer than I originally intended. Um, uh, Most, uh, if not uh, all, of the stories that we cover are stories that I covered in a similar series with our BCM group uh, last semester. And my original intention was that I was going to take four of those and bring them into this context. Um, But as I have uh, explored through these messages again and reframed them and expanded them uh, for this setting, um, it's been just such a, a blessing to me again because... The Lord is opening up uh, so many things, even in these same stories that I just taught a couple of months ago. And uh, specifically for tonight, uh, on our way home, or I'm sorry, on our way here, Allison and I were talking about this series, and I said, you know, it's just, it's so cool to me that in these passages, passages that most people completely write off, passages that people skip over, people that... Uh, passages that people purposely avoid because of their uh, different factors of being confusing or odd or weird or whatever. Um, Passages that people look at and say, there's nothing relevant here. What's so amazing to me is that in these passages, there was still so much truth to be mined. There's still so much here that's amazing. It's incredible. It, It blows my mind that you can take something so obscure And find within it so much relevant truth for right here and right now. And so my hope is that uh, going through this series and looking at these passages will give every single one of us uh, that are here and that are watching online a deeper appreciation for the Word of God. A deeper desire to explore further within the Word of God, that we won't be so quick to move past certain things in Scripture, that we will have an intentional desire to dig deeper when we come to passages that we don't get, that when we read something and there's not an immediate click in our minds, that we have a knowledge of, I know that there is something here, God put it here on purpose with eternal value and truth. Let me spend a little bit more time. I hope that that's one of the things that you walk away with today. Well, over 200 years ago, there was a moment which will sort of frame our text for today. There was a man who was riding on horseback. Normal guy, uh, at least looked that way. And uh, he was riding on his horse past what would soon be a battlefield in the Revolutionary War. As he was riding, he happened upon a small battalion of soldiers. And these soldiers were obviously exhausted from having fought many battles um, and and having had little sleep and working hard. And these these soldiers were digging a trench. Uh, And this trench was to be a battle trench. It, It was to be a position meant to fortify the troops, protecting them from advancing enemy forces. And so these, dig, the, these soldiers were digging this trench as their section leader, their, their lieutenant, stood close by shouting orders at them. Dig faster. Go quicker. This needs to be done immediately. And so this section leader uh, berated these men. 
screaming at them, commanding them to work harder. And so the man on the horse looked at this section leader and said, what are you guys doing? And the man puffed out his chest and he said, I am leading these men. These are my men. They are to obey my commands. We're fortifying our our position with orders that come directly from the top. So why aren't you helping them? Asked the man on the horse. I am the ranking officer. These are my men. This section leader retorted. And so the, the rider repeated, So why don't you help them? And the leader was incredulous. And he said, I, I just told you why. But if you feel so strongly about it, why don't you help them? Much to the surprise and shock of both this uh, young uh, lieutenant and his men, this stranger said, okay, dismounted from his horse, took off his riding jacket, and then he grabbed a shovel and jumped into the trench alongside the men and began to dig. The men, of course, are given new life. They're given new motivation that this is happening. And together, they work hard and they finish the job on time. And as they concluded their task, this man starts to go down the line and shake every soldier's filthy hand, encouraging them, thanking them for their hard work, wishing them the best of luck in battle. Then he walked back to his horse, wiped off his hands on a saddle blanket, put his jacket back on. And then for the first time, he walked directly over to this young captain and he said, You should notify higher command next time your rank prevents you from supporting your men. And I will happily provide a more permanent solution for you. Before this young man could retort, he looked closely at this stranger for the first time as they stood face to face. And his countenance immediately fell, but then he immediately snapped to attention and gave a proper salute. As he stood there shaking in his boots, and I'm sure fearing the worst, the young man realized that General George Washington had just helped fortify his squadron's battle position while he stood there barking orders and doing nothing. Washington, in this story, didn't punish the young man. He got on his horse and he rode away, leaving this young man with the opportunity to take that lesson and lead better in the future. This story illustrates a wide number of lessons for us, a few of which we will break down further um, from our text today. If we are wanting to lead others, we first must be willing to serve. But more than that, we must be willing to do what we want other people to do. Now, let me speak specifically to us as Christians. We are more than happy to tell other people about sin, their sin. We're very quick to shout from our high horses 
telling others the things that they need to dig out of their lives. But far too often, we are unwilling to do that hard work ourselves. Let me speak here for a moment as a pastor, as someone who is a religious leader in a number of contexts. There's an expectation that pastors be held to a higher standard. And that's a good, appropriate expectation. But far too often, that high standard is turned into a high pedestal. Where a pastor is put up in an ivory tower to pontificate. And the effect that this has on the people is that the people believe that the pastor is closer to God and somehow less prone to sin. Now certainly there's no one that expects that the pastor is going to be sinless. But in many senses the people expect that the pastor is going to sin less. Pastors are expected to be people who make little mistakes along the way. But they never do anything really bad. And this also affects the pastor, the, the spiritual leader in many ways as well. On the one side, pastors learn that they have to hide their struggles from everyone. There's no way that they can be genuine and show off any weakness. On the other side, what that turns into is that they start believing that they actually are better than everyone else. And that turns them into Pharisees. It becomes easy to stand up on Sunday and preach from the Bible very true things. And expect that everyone listening is going to do exactly as they say. Like the proud section leader from our story, they'll shout at their congregations, Dig! Dig the sin out of your heart and give it to Jesus. Let the gospel unroot all of your unrighteousness. All the while sitting on a horse, not letting Christ do the same thing in their own hearts. But let's be real honest, all of us. Pastors aren't the only ones guilty of this. See, every person who is sitting in the seats struggles with the very same thing. Listening to the truths of Scripture, thinking about how true it is, But it really applies to their spouse. It really applies to their friend. It really applies especially to their enemy. Nodding in agreement, but not living in application. How many people, under the sound of my voice, are harboring secret sin? How many people have things that no one knows about, that we know that God knows about, but you could never tell anyone else. How many people have things that they wish that they were free from, but freedom seems impossible? Or perhaps there's something that you harbor But you still believe that it's not that big of a deal. And other people, they, they are the real sinners. 
Ladies and gentlemen, here's the thing. We can sit here on our high horses and point the finger at everyone else, even though the words that we're saying may be completely true. We cannot lead until we first follow. God expects that each one of us get down in the dirt and commit to the truth of the gospel with action, not just words. If we are not allowing Christ to enter every single dark place of our soul, we are limited in our fruitfulness and we will never be free. Our text for today has been presented by some as being, quote, arguably the most bizarre and baffling passage in the entire Hebrew Bible. (laughs) So that's exactly where we're going to go, right? Challenge accepted. The most bizarre and baffling passage in the entire Hebrew Bible. Could there be something in a passage like that for us? This is one of those places that if you ever think, why is this even in here? This would definitely be the place to ask the question. So, uh, turn in your Bibles or look on the screen to Exodus chapter 4, verses 21 through 26. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt... See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Here, my friends, is where things take a very strange turn. At a lodging place along the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood Because of the circumcision. (laughs) Now as we read this passage, a number of questions come quickly to our minds. Questions like, if Moses is literally on his way to Egypt to fulfill and obey the command that God gave him to go and be the spokesperson to Pharaoh in Egypt, and Moses is heading there, why the heck would God want to meet him and kill him? It seems a bit counterproductive. Go, Moses, and do what I asked. And while you're on your way, I'm going to find you and take you out. It's weird. How about the term bridegroom of blood? I personally have never used that in my own life and cannot imagine a time when it would be appropriate to do so. A bridegroom of blood. What is this lady talking about? And then finally, 
um, this brings to mind an issue that I'm sure many of you have wondered about and asked the question, why is this even in here? It brings up this idea of circumcision. The Old Testament seems to mention this a lot. Right? The New Testament references a type of spiritual circumcision. And I don't know about you, but growing up in the church, that always weirded me out. I always looked at those passages and scratched my head as a pastor's kid and thought, what is happening here? Why is this a thing? Why did, why did God command that? Seems a bit weird. So... Before we break this down, let's start off with our weekly quiz. Uh, we have been going through each week some, uh, some principles for biblical interpretation. Things that help us to not only interpret the weird passages, but all of the passages in the Bible. And so, there are four principles that we've been talking about uh, essential for scriptural interpretation. So, Quiz, who can tell me what those are? Yes, sir. Scripture interprets scripture. Thank you, son. Very good. What else? The Bible must be read as an ancient document. Yes. Yes, there is a difference between description and prescription. And then one more. Yes, ma'am. Genre matters. These principles help us to frame every single passage of Scripture. Uh, Especially today, we'll be using that first principle in the list, which is that we must read the Bible as an ancient document. A passage like this seems incredibly weird to modern ears. But to the ancient audience, this would not have been so strange. To the people that are hearing this passage read to them, they would have nodded in understanding. And so, we have to put ourselves in their shoes and figure out what on earth were they getting from this so that we can get what we're supposed to get out of this. We have to note also the difference between description and prescription. Why did God describe something and is he telling us to do that thing ourselves? Are we being commanded something here or are we just being told about something here? We note the fact that genre matters. This is a passage of narrative recording an event in history. If this were poetry, for example, we would have to read it a bit differently. And then finally, Scripture interprets Scripture. We have to take this passage and put it in the light of every other passage that immediately surrounds it and that is found in the rest of the canon of Scripture. And when we put those pieces together, we can then hopefully understand what's going on. So, with that being stated, let's set some context for this passage. This passage takes place um, in the beginning of the Exodus account. Moses, as we all know, was a Hebrew, but he grew up in Egypt. Uh, when, when, when Moses was a baby, there was a command that went out to kill the Israelite boys. And Moses was put into a basket and put on uh, the river and was rescued by Pharaoh's daughter, raised then by Pharaoh's daughter 
even though he's a Hebrew, he grows up in the palace as a prince of Egypt. But eventually things kind of fell apart there, and he had compassion on his own people, and he tried to start standing up for them. But in the midst of doing so, he kills an Egyptian who was abusing a Hebrew slave, and then he has to flee from Egypt. And so he runs away. And where he runs away is to a place called Midian. And there in Midian, he marries this woman, Zipporah. Zipporah is the daughter of a priest, uh, a priest whose name is Jethro. From that moment forward, he spends the next 40 years, 40 years in the desert tending to sheep. So he spends 40 years basically by himself in the midst of a bunch of sheep. But then there's this crazy event where God calls to Moses through a burning bush. He sees this bush that's burning, but it's not being burned up. It's remaining. And so he says, let me turn aside to see this strange thing. And there, God speaks directly to him. And God commands him there and tells him, you are going to be my messenger to go back to Egypt to free your people from their slavery. Now, Moses, in this moment, spends a a little bit of time arguing back and forth with God, telling God all the reasons why he's not qualified, telling him why he can't be the one to do it. He's not gifted enough to do this job. And so, God finally allows Moses a small compromise. He says, okay, you can bring your brother along too. So, his brother Aaron will join him in the mission. So when we reach our passage, God has just convinced Moses to go to Pharaoh. And Moses is now on his way to meet Aaron. And the two of them are going to go and fulfill this mission. So why the heck is God trying to kill Moses at this point? And what is it exactly that stops God from killing Moses? Now in order to answer those questions, we need to set some further context. We have to uh, build a little bit more knowledge somewhere else before we can come back here. We first need to establish the significance in the Old Testament and the New of this idea of circumcision. Which again is something that I'm sure we've all asked. Why is this even in here? Why did God command this? And once we establish that, then we can bring that knowledge back to Exodus chapter 4. So, put a bookmark here in your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 17, verses 9 through 14. Genesis 17, 9 through 14. Here in this passage, God is speaking to Abraham. They have entered a covenant in uh, chapter 15, which is a passage that I've mentioned before with the covenant cutting ceremony. After that, God here in Genesis 17 gives Abraham the symbol of the covenant. Beginning in verse 9, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep, between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. 
He who was eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who's not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. And any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. All right, Lord, what are you doing? Why this? Again, here in this passage, God establishes the symbol of circumcision, and it is not an arbitrary symbol. This symbol serves a very clear purpose, clear to them, at least, if not to us. What this is, is an experiential analogy. It is something physical that they live out that will remind them of something invisible that God has given them. Note in this passage that it doesn't tell us that circumcision saves. Circumcision is not what saves. It is a symbol of the covenant that God has already entered into. There in verse 8, I'm sorry, verse 11, where he says, You shall be circumcised. He says, It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. It's a sign. It is a symbol. It is something that points towards something. It is an outward sign of an inward reality. Now, again, Genesis 15 is where God actually enters into the covenant with Abram. That's where the covenant actually started. And in that passage, Abram didn't do anything to deserve it. He didn't do anything to earn it. He didn't do anything to gain his salvation. If anything, God said, sit down, buddy. I'm going to take care of everything. And so the covenant started in chapter 15. God made the promise, and it was before God made the command to circumcise. The covenant saved, but now the sign of the, uh, of the covenant is being established. So what could this be pointing to? Now, if you remember a few messages ago, we talked about some of the strange laws in Leviticus. Things that to us don't make any sense. Don't wear clothing made with mixed fibers. Don't sow two different kinds of seed in your field. Don't shave the edges of your beard, which I'm trying not to do, okay, as you can see. And we asked the question, why did God uh, command those Weird things. And the answer to that question was that those things are experiential analogies. Those things were reminders to the people. Every day, as they did these inconvenient things, it would be a reminder I can't mix the seeds together, just like I can't mix my heart with anything else. I can't wear a, a, a piece of clothing made with mixed fibers. I must remain pure even in that because it's a sign of what I'm doing with my life. These things are reminders to be pure, reminders to be undefiled. So what on earth would circumcision remind them of? What on earth would circumcision be analogizing? To answer that question, we go to the New Testament. In the New Testament, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Now, the author of this passage is the Apostle Paul. 
Uh, and, and we know that the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. He was a teacher of the law. He was a Jew of Jews. It, it, he was as Jewish as you can get. And so he would have been one to live in this command from Genesis chapter 17, circumcised on the eighth day. And Paul talks a lot about circumcision. But here's what he says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. In, In him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross." He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. I want you to note in that passage, especially verse 11. In verse 11, we see what the inward reality is. The inward reality is the cutting off of the flesh. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So we're talking about a spiritual sense here. By putting off the body of the flesh. This is the circumcision of Christ. So when, he, when we talk about the flesh, whenever we use that term, the flesh, obviously what we're talking about is our broken human nature. So the inward reality that we're discussing is the cutting off of the body of sin. It's, it's what God does in our hearts when he takes us from relying on our own strength, on our own wisdom, on our own power, on our own desires, on our own control. It is the removing of a very natural belief that we can save ourselves and give ourselves a future. We cannot give ourselves a future, but that is what we work toward in our own power. We believe that in and of ourselves, I can gain for myself and for my family a secure future. But God says, I need to cut that off from you. Not the secure future, but the belief that you can do it on your own. When we note when the, uh, the command was given in Genesis chapter 17... When God gave this command to Abraham, it was directly connected to a promise. The promise that it's connected to is a promise of lineage. God told Abraham, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Through you, I will bless all the nations. So the promise that he gives Abraham is to multiply his lineage. And we have to know that in the ancient world, lineage was the chief number one symbol of value and worth. It was almost salvific because your goal in life is to create a name for yourself, a name for your family. And you do that by having children. 
in this culture, especially male children. So to Abraham and to everyone in his immediate context, the promise of lineage held utmost value. But here's the key. The key is that in order to attain that promise of lineage, Abraham is commanded, ironically, not to rely on the flesh. In terms of lineage, there is one part of the flesh that you would naturally rely on. Is it not? But he's commanded not to rely on the flesh. And so to symbolize that, there's a cutting off of the flesh in that place directly responsible for lineage. It was to say, I trust in the promise of God, not in the flesh. So I will come as close as I possibly can to cutting off my physical means for creating my own future as a way to symbolize my faith that he will be responsible for my future, not me. Again, going back to that passage in Genesis chapter 15, where the covenant is literally cut, where animals are being cut in half and a blood path is set up. The custom was to say, death unto me as unto these animals, if I do not uphold my end of the covenant. And so cutting up the animals was a sign of being willing to put your own life on the line to say, I'll keep the promise or you can cut me. And so the symbol of circumcision is used because just like cutting the animals in half signified death, circumcision symbolized cutting off your offspring. The knife is so close to cutting off your ability to bear children. So in another manner of speaking, it is to say, may my lineage be cut off if I do not keep my promise. May my ability for my future, my ability to create a future for myself, be made subject to trusting in God, to creating an eternal future for me instead. And so from that point on, God commanded the people, if you are to be in a covenant with me, this this is how you put on a wedding ring. Just like a wedding ring has no power in and of itself, By taking it off, as much as my wife hates it when I take off my ring, this does not mean that we're no longer married. This ring is a symbol. What it shows is I'm married. It's a physical symbol of an inward reality. If you take it off because you are trying to hit on other women, that is a problem, right? You have to keep that thing on. You got to keep your heart and your eyes on your wife circumcision was a wedding ring you could never take off. It's always there. Now here's the thing. There's plenty of people who were just ethnically, culturally Jewish. People who were circumcised as obedience to this command, as a cultural custom, but never actually married to God. But believing that they're okay because they've done this outward thing. And that's why Jesus and Paul squared off so much with the Jews who were outwardly committed in this way, but not inwardly committed. What what Jesus and Paul were saying to these people were, you're wearing a wedding ring, but you never got married. How backwards is that? So to sum it up, 
God's command of circumcision was to be the outward sign of an inward reality of trusting God to be a person's future. So, armed with all of that, with all of those disparate pieces, we can now put them all together to figure out what on earth is going on in this passage. Exodus 4 21 through 26. Let me just read for us once more the uh, key events from uh, verses 24 to 26. At a lodging place along the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because... The circumcision. So if you're taking notes, here's point number one. We cannot be called to lead until we are ready to follow. We cannot be called to lead until we are ready to follow. Now that we have the ancient context, what we understand is that God threatened to kill Moses because Moses was disobedient to God's covenant command. We remember in the surrounding text that God sends Moses with a message to Pharaoh that Israel is God's firstborn son. And so now Pharaoh needs to obey God's command or God is going to kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. And right after that is when our weird passage happens. And so it becomes abundantly clear to us in this way that Moses has not obeyed God's command concerning his own firstborn son. Moses did not circumcise his son. And so God was not about to send Moses to be his covenant representative to the people when he hadn't been obedient himself to that covenant. God was not going to allow someone to lead who had not themselves first submitted. Now, why had Moses not circumcised his firstborn son? We have no idea. There is nothing in scripture that reveals what his motivation was. Nowhere that we learn what the reason was that Moses was not obedient to this command. The point is, he wasn't. For whatever reason it was, Moses did not obey. But he knew that God commanded it. Furthermore, Zipporah knew that God commanded it. And that is why she jumps in quickly to rectify the situation. We, we read here that it's Zipporah who circumcises the son, not Moses. Zipporah takes action. Zipporah does what God has commanded. And there's a lot of wisdom in this that I personally can experience, uh, that I personally can identify with from my own experience. In this passage, God uses a man's wife to show him how to be obedient to the God that he claims to serve. Oh, how I know that to be true. God has given me a partner 
that stands in the gap for me. Interceding on my behalf, showing me what it means to be faithful. And jumping into action when necessary. I also know what it means to have a wife pull a knife on you. Remind me to tell you that story at a different time. She's Italian, y'all, okay? And if your wife has never pulled a knife on you, count yourself lucky. I have. And so did Moses. Zipporah takes a knife and performs the commanded sign. She puts God's wedding ring onto Moses. And then, not surprisingly, uses marital language. To say, you have become a bridegroom of blood to me. What is she saying here? She's saying, you were always supposed to be married to God in order to be connected to me. And you didn't act. So I did. I did what was necessary to connect you to God and to make you capable of leading our family. So Zipporah did what George Washington did in the story that we talked about before. She looked at the section leader who was sitting on a horse getting ready to go and command the people what to do. And she asked, why aren't you doing your job? And because he just sat there, she got her hands dirty. She did what he wouldn't do. She showed him how to lead. So there's a very specific lesson that's being communicated to the ancient readers, and that is we all must follow the covenant all the way. No one is exempt, not even the leader himself. Everybody must be all in. Let's remember the author of this text. And Can anybody tell me who's writing this? Anybody know the author of Exodus chapter 4? Moses. Moses is writing this. So Moses is the one who's, who's recording this and then reading it to the people. And so it's significant that in, a, in, in the middle of a story that's about his calling, Moses quickly inserts these three verses in the middle and then quickly moves on. Almost in passing. But to say, oh yeah, uh, I was called and it was incredible, but in the middle of all that, uh, God wanted to kill me and then my wife saved me. (laughs) We have to remember when Moses was writing this and when he's giving it to the people. Moses wrote this during the time that the Israelites are wandering in the desert. So this story would have been read to the Israelites around the same time that God hands down the rest of the law. And so Moses records this story and includes it in the narrative in order to say to the people, don't think that I'm immune from this just because I'm the leader and I get to meet with God in the tent every single day. I was disobedient and God was going to kill me too. I have to obey. Guys, we have to stop pretending that the commands of Scripture don't apply to us, only to other people. We have to stop pretending that we can ever hide sin. 
We have to stop acting like we're obedient to God because we're going to church and reading the Bible and doing a bunch of Christian things, but simultaneously disobeying his command to be completely submitted to him. Now, here's the thing. I know that that's a process. I know that that doesn't happen overnight. I can tell you from personal experience that it's a process slowly worked by the Holy Spirit to draw us completely to him. He takes time to work on our hearts, slowly draining the poison that we've been filling it with over years and years of addictions to false idols. But today, I want you to hear the truth. God is drawing you to himself. And he is doing all of the necessary work to redeem you. Part of the lie that sin makes us believe is that we can never be free. We could never fully admit to what we are guilty of. We could never be fully loved if we are also fully known. And so we hide. We pretend. We, we create a disassociated identity of the person who does those things. But that's not really me. And we swear up and down. Uh, the, I can balance the two. And we spend years believing that there's no hope that we could ever be free. But that is where the really good news comes in. We have a God who loves us so much that he takes the fullness of sin upon himself and he becomes a bridegroom of blood to us. So here's point number two. Salvation, freedom, and life are found when we are covered by the blood. Salvation, freedom, and life are found when we are covered by the blood. I've told you before that in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, what we find are a number of subtle foreshadowings, subtle things, and sometimes not so subtle, that point us forward to what is going to come later, and that is Jesus. And the Old Testament is full of these places that are signs pointing our attention in the direction of Christ. And in this passage, what we have are some subtle foreshadowings. Though it may not be immediately obvious, there are subtle foreshadowings to the cross here. We've already talked about one of them, Zipporah. Zipporah loved her husband so much that she stood between him and a God who was rightly angry over sin. Notice what verse 24 says. Verse 24, at a lodging place along the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. So this passage says that God met Moses. God was there. Whatever that looked like. I don't know. But somehow God physically met Moses and he came with intention. Intent to kill intent to harm. He showed up ready to pop off because Mo didn't cut off. God 
physically is there. And I'm sure that it was terrifying. (laughs) Praise God, I have never seen him in that way. But here God shows up with intent to kill Moses. And what did Zipporah do? She didn't run. She did not hide. And so many of us would. The angel of death shows up with the, 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 the weapon in his hand. And most of us would be like, all right, peace, I'm out. <laughs> That's not what Zipporah does. Zipporah looked fully into the terrible wrath of a righteous God, and she stood in the gap. She knew exactly what needed to be done in order to avert judgment. And on behalf of her husband, on behalf of her children, and on behalf of all of the people of God who at that moment were in bondage to their slave master overlords. In, on the behalf of all of them, she shed covenant blood. And because of her actions, because she jumped in the ditch with the dirty soldiers, not only was Moses saved, not only were her children saved, the people of God ended up being saved. If you cannot see a connection to Jesus there, you are not paying attention. Jesus, like a greater Zipporah, like a greater George Washington, got off of his throne and jumped down in the dirt to stand in the gap between us and a righteously angry God, angry at sin. And he shed his own covenantal blood in order to be our bridegroom. There's also another subtle foreshadowing in this passage. There's a foreshadowing to just a few chapters later, Exodus chapter 12. As it turns out, Exodus chapter 4 and Exodus chapter 12 are parallels to each other. In Exodus chapter 12, we find the final of the 10 plagues. At this point, Moses has gone in and he's been the spokesperson and God, one after another, is dealing blow after blow after blow. To Pharaoh and Egypt. And then we come to the final plague where God says, Let my people go, or I will kill your firstborn son and all the firstborn sons in Egypt. Everybody is going to get hit with the angel of death. This is right before the people are going to be set free. The angel of death is coming for the firstborn sons, likely the same angel of death as God that was going to kill Moses. So in Exodus chapter 12, how is it that God told the Israelites to set themselves apart so that they might be spared? God tells them to put blood on their doorpost so that their firstborn sons will be protected. Literally what the verse says is God says, take a branch and dip it in blood and touch it to the doorpost of your house and the angel of death will pass over. In a literal sense, they are covered by the blood. Now here's what's interesting. The same Hebrew word for touched, where in chapter 12 it says, touch the blood to your doorpost, 
is used in Exodus 4.25. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses with it and said, Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. The Hebrew word there is the word naga. It means touched. In our passage, Zipporah touched her husband with blood. In Exodus chapter 12, the people touched the doorpost with blood. So this strange passage in Exodus chapter 4 is a subtle nod to what's going to happen eight chapters later. And we know for sure that Exodus chapter 12, where they're covered by the blood, is a direct foreshadowing to Jesus. If we are to be saved, we need to be covered by his blood. And let's ask this question. Do you think it's a coincidence that Moses is saved by the blood of his son? Of course not. Because it's pointing to the beautiful truth that we are going to be saved by the blood of the son of God. He will free us. He will cover us. He will give us everything we need in order to be rescued from the Egypt-like slavery of sin, which keeps us in bondage, forcing us to do its will. Jesus is our freedom. Will you let him be your bridegroom of blood? You know, last week I mentioned that Allison and I have been having some pretty incredible talks about the sin in both of our lives. And I thought that when I mentioned that here on Sunday last week, that those talks were over. But thanks be to God, they were not. He was about to blow the lid off of places in my heart that I've kept hidden my entire life. He was about to break open a dam. And he threw off this week the covers of the self-righteous Pharisee that I have become and brought me to a level of repentance that I have not experienced in my entire life. I, for so long, believed the lie that there were things that no one could ever know. Especially my wife. Thank God he rescued me from that lie. Thank God he gave me my own Zipporah. Who would stand in the gap and get bloody. In order to restore right fellowship with God. Now I've talked before about the fact that I want this church to be a place where we are real about sin and brokenness. Where people don't feel like they need to clean themselves up in order to get to God. And so I invite all of you and all who are watching to join me in that freedom. It feels sweet. This church is filled with Zipporahs, people who are willing to stand in the gap with you if you allow yourself to come to Christ as a bridegroom of blood. Let's walk in that freedom together, shall we?
We're going to do something a little different tonight. Like I said, um, instead of one closing song, there's going to be two. Because I want to give the Holy Spirit time to work on your heart. And I'll be standing right here at the front with Allison. Uh, We won't face this way, we'll face that way, so it's not weird. But um, if during this time uh, you'd like to pray with one of us or or both of us, um, start a conversation, please come and do so. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. Thank you so much for freedom bought by Christ. Thank you that you can set us free. Thank you, Lord, that you are the, the bridegroom of blood that comes and rescues us when we have not fulfilled our covenant. That you set us free from Egypt. God, I pray for every person under the sound of my voice, whether in this room or watching somewhere else, listening in their car, wherever they might be, God, you are drawing people to yourself. And I know for sure somebody needs to hear this. God, I pray that you would break through the lies that Satan tells, that there's no way we could ever tell anybody else this. Pray that you would break through the lie that we can't both be fully known and fully loved. God, I pray that you would bring people to submission, people to freedom, that people would do the hard work of laying down their sin at the altar. And I pray that you would surround those people with Zipporahs who will stand in the gap on their behalf. God, as we sing these closing songs, I pray that the Holy Spirit would work in people's hearts, drawing people to you, and that people would experience freedom like they never have before. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would stand, uh, we will now close in worship.